Hello and welcome to the first episode of On Lynch. My name is Mackenzie Wilkes. This is going to be a podcast where I go on a deep dive of everything David Lynch. That means his films, his television shows, his visual art, his music, everything. We're going to talk about it all and I'm so excited to start this journey with you all. I just at the top want to thank everybody for their support so far. You all have been so lovely and it has really been an inspiration to really get this project off the ground and I'm super excited to start. And we are beginning, the very beginning, with Eraserhead. We're going to talk about his short films a little bit. As many of you may know, he had some pretty iconic short films before Eraserhead. I'm going to talk about those more in depth with guests later down the road, but to begin this podcast, I, I wanted to focus on Eraserhead because I feel like, I mean, it's Eraserhead. For a long time, I was actually kind of scared to watch Eraserhead. I was kind of scared to watch anything by David Lynch, but this film specifically represented everything that I was kind of nervous about. I was nervous that I wouldn't get the movie the way I was supposed to, or that I would come away not understanding it and feel dumb. I, I kind of felt that people made his work feel so unattainable and unapproachable that what would be the point in me even trying and then I began to research David Lynch and learn more about him and I realized oh this is just me getting in the way of myself you know I just have to let myself enjoy the work not worry about getting it and just let it affect me the way it's going to affect me when I finally began watching and loving the work of David Lynch, I really did realize I didn't have to get everything to be moved and inspired by it. And I even realized that David Lynch himself just wants you to watch the films and let them resonate with you in whatever way they will. So I finally got out of my own way and I watched Eraserhead. I was confused <laughs> when I first watched it, but I didn't hate it. You know, I, I'm not a big body horror person, so Spike, as much as I love that little baby, kind of <laughs> made me nervous. And some of the images just were so grotesque. I was just like, what is going on the whole time I was watching this, as I'm sure a lot of people feel when they watch Eraserhead. Not to mention that I started my Lynch experiences with Mulholland Drive. So going from Mulholland Drive to Eraserhead was quite a shift, to say the least. But it did fascinate me. I kept thinking about it. I could not stop thinking about this movie that after I saw it. And I started reading. I bought books and listened to interviews and began compiling my thoughts. And I began to realize I love this movie. It really has been such a long time since a film has made me think and explore as much as Eraserhead has. I began to kind of understand Lynch and what he was intending a little bit more. And as a theater maker myself, this kind of weird abstract film that manages to blend filmmaking with German expressionism and theater of the absurd and stark abstract images, I was like, wait, this is awesome. <laughs> and a big reason of why I began to love it is because I sought out other people talking about this movie. And I could watch videos or listen to podcasts and go, oh, I don't agree with that. Or, oh yeah, that's exactly what I got. And I realized I just wanted to talk to people about David Lynch movies. So that's why I started this podcast. And Eraserhead is a huge part of that.
So I'm excited to dive into this episode with you all, and I will implore throughout the episode, but I want to say up here as well, please head over to onlinchpodcast.com. I have a contact section, and you're welcome to send me your thoughts about Eraserhead, because I'd love to do a fun follow-up episode where maybe I read some of your thoughts on the podcast, and we can start this kind of discussion together. I'm really excited to connect with you all and talk about one of my favorite filmmakers, and hopefully one of yours as well. In this episode, we'll get into the production of the film, Lynch's inspirations behind the piece, my personal interpretations and themes of Eraserhead, and so much more. This will definitely not be the only time I talk about this film because there is just so much. (laughs) I will definitely only be scratching the surface, but I am excited to start. Now let's begin with the origins of Eraserhead. It's strange how Eraserhead is. It is a, a personal film. It's my first feature and it took the longest of any film and i lived and loved that world before we unpack the film itself let's talk about the origins of the production of the film the production process of eraserhead is a notoriously interesting one spanning a five-year period the team that created eraserhead lived and breathed this film often sleeping on a set feeding each other with what scraps they could find and learning their jobs as the production went on but let's go back to the very beginning In the late 60s, David Lynch was shifting in his artistry. As a painter and visual artist, he realized that he wanted to express his ideas with moving paints, films. He began going to school in Philadelphia, where in 1967, he created Six Men Getting Sick Six Times, little tongue twister for you there, and the next year, The Alphabet. Lynch has spoken a lot about his time in Philadelphia at school and how it's permeated all of his work. That's why I say Philadelphia is my greatest um, influence, because uh, a lot of things started in Philadelphia, and there is a certain mood to some of these interiors, and they carry way more than what you see. A thing is indicated from these interiors. Something about the light and the molding and the proportions a thing is indicated, and the mood outside. And it sort of seemed like to me that there were factories, industrial buildings, and uh, neighborhoods, uh, dark and forlorn, tucked in somewhere, sort of like you can't get there from here. They're sort of lost in another kind of place, and this is what comes from Philadelphia. He frequently refers to Eraserhead as the real Philadelphia story, as the mood for the film is directly based off of his experiences in Philadelphia. As we'll talk about with most every David Lynch film, what makes his films so distinct is his attention to the mood of his films and how all-encompassing he makes them. The mood of Philadelphia, to him, and therefore the mood of Eraserhead, is a grotesque, shadowy, industrial landscape that overwhelms the inhabitants. There is terror lurking around every corner. There's the hissing of steam and almost constant rumbling of an engine in your ears. There's grime. There's filth. There's fear. Lynch's Philadelphia inspiration is important to a lot of his films, but especially Eraserhead. This definitely won't be the last time we see that influence. There's a great article on Artform about Lynch's Philadelphia that I'll link in the show notes. The greatest influence for me in my work was uh, the city of Philadelphia which I consider to be one of the sickest, most uh, uh, corrupt, uh, decadent, fear-ridden cities uh, that exists. 
So after exploring filmed art with two short films, Lynch learned of the, at the time, newly founded American Film Institute and applied for a grant to produce his third short film. The application process required a previous work, Lynch went with the alphabet, and a script for a new work to produce. He wrote a script that was, quote, very weird because I'd never written anything before. It was just images and stuff, sort of like shorthand and poetry. When the initial group of recipients came out, Lynch was embarrassed. They all had big names and tons of previous work. He felt silly for applying until one day he found out he got a grant through the second group of recipients from AFI. Though he initially secured less than anticipated, he was soon able to receive the full $7,200 he required to produce The Grandmother. Lynch would later refer to The Grandmother as a work he loves but thinks of as innocent and sort of primitive, but it can't be denied that his acceptance from AFI and the ability to create his art led to his confidence to become a full-fledged filmmaker. After the success of The Grandmother, Lynch was encouraged to go to film school in Los Angeles at the Center for Advanced Film Studies through AFI. It took him until his second year applying, but he was accepted and he moved his family to LA so he could pursue his education in film. Sunny Los Angeles was the total antithesis to the dark oppressiveness of Philadelphia to Lynch. Though Lynch is not a fan of the constrictive nature of schools and programs, he said, they are fun places to be because of the inspiration of other painters and filmmakers. He found the grant program to be the most useful, as filmmakers were given the money to go off and create, learn by doing. He said, you make your own mistakes, you do your budget, you get it together, and because they give you that responsibility, they're not treating you like an idiot, you try to do a good job. During his application to be at the center, he submitted an idea for a film called Gardenback, and throughout his first year at school, he was working on that script. So I think this next quote is very funny, and I do notice that when I say David Lynch quotes, I feel like I almost accidentally do a David Lynch voice, which I'm trying not to do, but I feel like I just hear things in his voice because it's so distinct. But when asked to describe what Gardenback was about, Lynch said, Gardenback was a story of adultery. It was like, you know when you look at a girl, right? Something crosses from her to you. You dig what I'm saying? And in this story, that something was an insect which grew in this man's attic, which was like his mind, right? And the house was like a head. Well, it didn't look like a head, but it was that way. And the thing grew and metamorphosized into this monster which overtook him. But it influenced him, and he didn't become it, but he had to, like, deal with it. And it drove him to completely ruining his home and going madly for this, you know woman. I think this concept sounds really cool and I understand why he didn't make it in hindsight, but man would I love for him to revisit it one day. Plus, fun fact, the characters of Gardenback, the man and the woman, would kind of morph into Henry Spencer and Mary X in Eraserhead. So I would also say the themes of Gardenback are still present in Eraserhead, even if it's to a smaller extent. Caleb Deschanel, who would later go on to become a famous cinematographer and father to Zoe and Emily, if you like New Girl or Bones, was a classmate of Lynch's who read Gardenback and loved it. He wanted to show it to some of his contacts at 20th Century Fox and expanded into a full-length feature. Lynch noted that it wasn't regular enough, that it needed more dialogue and more traditional story structure than what he had written into it. He began working with Deschanel and other collaborators to make it more of a traditional film, but it wasn't a good process. It didn't work out. I was completely fed up. I was, it was going nowhere. It was getting longer, but all my good bits that I liked were, you know, just being filled up in between with stuff I didn't have a clue why it was there. The rewriting of Gardenback was a stressful and anger-inducing process for Lynch, and to relax from those long days, he would go home and write a story in his head that he was calling Eraserhead. By the end of his first year, all he had was a script for Gardenback that had been bastardized by his cohorts. At the beginning of his second year, he was put with a first-year group, and that humiliated him. 
He stormed up to Dean Frank Danielle and quit the program because of his experience so far and his loss of inspiration with Gardenback. The next day, Danielle called him and said the school must have done something wrong if they upset one of their favorite students. He asked Lynch what he wanted to do instead so that maybe instead of quitting, he could create something that he could love. Lynch responded bluntly, I want to do this thing called Eraserhead. Danielle told him to come back to the center and do Eraserhead. It was 1971 and Lynch got the green light to move forward with Eraserhead in his second year at AFI. By that time, he had written a 21-page script that mostly consisted of descriptive texts and moods. The center saw this and assumed it would be a 20-minute movie, though Lynch implored it would be longer than that. They settled. Fine. A 42-minute movie. Lynch knew this was wishful thinking and that it would be longer, but nevertheless, he agreed and was given a lot of leeway to use the equipment he needed. He theorized because they felt bad about upsetting him and making him almost walk away from the program. He discovered on campus old stables that were unused and abandoned and converted them into sets, most prominently the Spencer House. I call them the stables. There were stalls. There were garages. There were car garages all equipped with hydraulic lifts for the old, you know, cars. There were maids' quarters. There was a huge hayloft. And there was a place where they stored firewood, which was, you know, kind of enormous, too. And there was also a, a greenhouse and gardener's quarters and some other surrounding areas. It was like um, a mini soundstage. They were mostly left alone there by the school, Lynch even living on the set when he was going through his first divorce about a year into filming. This small group of artists slept, ate, and absorbed the set as they worked. Lynch attributes the intimate, close nature of the group while filming to be a big reason why the mood and energy was captured and upheld so perfectly through filming, even though filming took close to five years. The casting of this film was like any other. Actors auditioned and Lynch basically cast the first people he saw for the roles, which is kind of unlike any other. Each one of them, I guess, just happened to be what he was looking for, and he didn't need to see anyone else. I think the casting stories from Eraserhead are particularly charming, though, because so many of the people who worked on this film, both in front and behind the camera, would go on to become lifelong collaborators and friends with David Lynch. The cast was set, and they rehearsed for a few weeks as Lynch built many of the sets himself. After almost a year of pre-production, on May 29, 1972, they began filming. AFI gave him $10,000 under the assumption that this was to be a short film, not a feature. Now, that sounds like a large amount of money, but for movie making standards, it's definitely not enough to make a full-length feature film. It's a drop in the bucket. Lynch's dedication to paying all of his artists fairly, a point of view that is still not held up by many creators in power today, is something I love about him. He was dedicated to paying everyone what he could, as well as making the film everything he wanted it to be. He didn't think those two things were mutually exclusive. They were cheap. Costumes were thrifted, set items were taken from the trash or sourced for free by family members. Everyone contributed to try and make this film on the lowest budget they could. When AFI realized that this was a much longer film than they had budgeted for, tensions grew a bit between Lynch and the center. There was only so much money they could give him, and the lack of money began to strain the ability to film consistently. With hardly any budget, donations from Jack Fisk, who plays the man in the planet, is the art director of the film and Lynch's childhood best friend, and his wife, Sissy Spacek, Yes, that Sissy Spacek, kept the production afloat, albeit on and off, for the next four and a half years. Famously, Lynch mentions in many interviews that there's a shot of Jack Nance as Henry Spencer walking down the hallway of the apartment, and when he opens the door, it's a year and a half later. That's how long some of the pauses in production lasted, but they did it. 
They worked their butts off, scraped together all the money they needed, and they did it together. Hearing Lynch talk in interviews about this process is really lovely because you can tell they had built a little family together. He often talks a lot about how this was probably the best production process he ever had and how making this film was one of the happiest times of his life. In late 1975, early 1976, filming wrapped as they were on a time crunch to get out of there before the school finally kicked them out after four years. Lynch was editing the film as they went along, popping in all the scenes in order as they filmed them, so the editing of the visuals didn't take long. The next big step was sound design, a now iconic soundscape of industrial darkness. For the design, Lynch worked closely with his good friend and sound designer, Alan Splett, to create the engrossing world of Eraserhead. As they dove into design, they had no money for sound stock, so they were able to find some that had been thrown out of the Warner Brothers lot in order to repurpose it, same as Lynch had been doing with the sets and props. They spent day and night together working meticulously on the soundscape with these refurbished reels, as well as the sounds they would record and make themselves. Every moment of sound in Eraserhead is so specific. When they began to layer in the music to the visuals, it was painstaking how precise Lynch wanted to be. Lynch said of the sound, the main part of it is that the picture dictates the sound. It's like, it's not a mathematical thing, as you know. It's all on the feeling, but in a way that is sort of mathematical. You only have one sound that's right for that scene, and when you hear it, you really know it. Something I want to touch on real quickly before we move on to where Eraserhead ended up next is the electricity in the sound design, literally. Electricity is a prominent image in this piece and would later go on to permeate all of Lynch's works to this day. In Lynch on Lynch, Chris Rodley asked about the presence of electricity in this movie, to which Lynch responded, There are certain things that come into the home, you know, things that are built or created outside the house, which all speak of the time and about the life. And then something goes wrong with those things, and if they're not in good working order, it can mean something else too. Rodley prods further, saying that Lynch tends to use faulty electricity within his work at specific moments, as well as electrical currents that come before imminent danger or revelation, noting that electricity becomes linked with the inexplicable. To which Lynch responds, yeah, but scientists don't understand it. We don't know why it happens, but it's a force. When electrons run down a wire, they have that power. It's amazing. And light bulbs, I can feel these random electrons, you know, hitting me. It's like when you go under power lines and there's something very disturbing about the amount of electricity. I bring this up because I think I would be remiss not to mention it as we begin our deep dive into Lynch's works. Electricity and light created from electricity is so important to most of his pieces and this is no exception. I believe Lynch is fascinated by electricity because it's powerful but it can be understood. Kind of reminds me of his work in that way. We're rounding the final bit of production process on Eraserhead. In the middle of the sound design, someone from the Cannes Film Festival approached them about bringing their film to Cannes. Cannes is a very famous film festival held in Cannes, France, that premieres films from around the world. It's a great privilege to have your film chosen for a Cannes screening, and even more so if your film walks away with some awards that week. Splett and Lynch decided to kick it into gear in order to have the film ready for the festival. By the time they finished, they had 12 reels of film and 12 reels of audio that needed to race to New York City to be screened for the festival. And uh, so finally it was over, packed it up, came back, and never heard anything. And so I made a phone call, and it turns out that the people who I thought were looking at the film in that room had left New York for Paris two days earlier. And the guy was showing uh, films to an empty house. So, uh, Eraserhead never went to Cannes. After hearing this story, I always wonder what would have happened if Eraserhead had gone to Cannes. 
I honestly don't know if it would have the same longevity in life it has now, honestly, because I do think that its cult status as a midnight film is what made Eraserhead iconic and really created that dedicated fan base for his work. March 19, 1977, at midnight, was the first official screening of Eraserhead at Filmex 77. That night, Lynch thinks he horrified his audience because he realized the film was too long. He immediately went home and cut parts of the film out from the composite print, and because of that, they were lost after that, much to the regret of Lynch today. But, as the film stands now, is what he created after cutting those scenes out. So, only people in the audience on March 19, 1977, actually saw some of the cut scenes from this now infamous long version of Eraserhead. Lynch cites the advocacy of a man named Ben Barinholtz as to why Eraserhead has stood the test of time. Barinholtz, who Lynch called the father of midnight movies, picked up Eraserhead, loved it, and began screening it as a midnight movie, alongside the films of the master of filth and cult movies himself, John Waters. And really, the rest is history. Against all odds, Eraserhead has really cemented itself as one of the most interesting and abstract mainstream films in American cinema, and that's all from Lynch's dedication and vision. In 2004, Eraserhead was selected for the preservation in the National Film Registry by the United States Library of Congress, as it was deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. This film has continued to fascinate audiences for over 50 years and will continue to do so, I believe, for a very long time. So this was a lot of information, but there's even some stories I didn't have time to touch on, if you can believe it. I really recommend Godwin's book, linked in my show notes, for everything you'd ever want to know about Eraserhead. And now that we know about the production of the film, I want to dive into my thoughts on the themes of the film. When you ask someone what they think Eraserhead is about, nine times out of ten you will get the response, well, it's clearly about David Lynch's fear of fatherhood. Now, I'm not going to be the one out of those ten trying to tell you anything different. I do think it's a prevalent enough theme that it truly cannot be denied as one of the main parts of the film. I think there's more happening here, but the through line of it does seem to be fatherhood and how it ties into the filth of that. The filth of sex, the filth of life. Henry Spencer's home quite literally lets the filth of the outside world seep in. It's in every pore of this movie, and I think it's deeply related to the Philadelphia inspiration I spoke about before. When we see Henry, he's stepping in mud and muck, making his way across garbage dunes in the dark, seedy city he lives in. When we go into his home, it's covered with rotting vegetation and dirt. The baby, even, Spike, as he was lovingly called by Jack Nance, feels grotesque and filthy. He doesn't look like something you'd necessarily want to swaddle and hold. I think this ever-pervading sense of filthiness in the world is a huge factor of the mood, and it ties really well into the theme of fatherhood for me. Raising a baby is messy business. Hell, having a baby is messy business. I'm not 100% sure on my thoughts around this, but on my first watch of the film, my brain made connections to the bleeding chickens in the ex-household to Henry's nosebleed in the very same scene. Immediately upon seeing the position of the chicken's body, I was like, oh, that looks like a person in stirrups ready to give birth. The blood gushing out especially felt indicative of childbirth to me. That was the only thing I could think of during that whole sequence. And yeah, we all say it's a beautiful thing to give life, but it's bloody and nasty. Shortly after this uh, visceral imagery, in my opinion, Henry finds out he's a father and his nose begins to bleed. Too nervous. There's a baby. It's at the hospital. Mom! And you're the father. 
It's impossible. It, it's only... No, they're still not sure it is a baby. It's premature, but there's a baby. Bobby's got a nosebleed. In my brain, I thought, well, is this his childbirth? Is this blood, this bodily autonomy being taken from him, this gushing of fluids from his body? Is this the metaphor for him for becoming a father? I'm not sure how grounded that is or how attached I am to that as a thought, but it's something that stuck out to me on my first watch that I see every time I watch, and I kind of wanted to share that with y'all. The childbirth theme even continues because David Lynch himself calls the small sperm-looking creatures that fall from the ceiling and then are stomped by the lady in the radiator little fetuses in Lynch on Lynch. I think that it's impossible to deny the imagery of this woman stomping out these fetuses as being deeply evocative of the visual fear, yes, but also anger towards parenthood. Her killing these fetuses that look a lot like his baby is almost letting him know that his patricide will be okay in her eyes. And patricide, wow, that's uh, pretty important. (laughs) The choice Henry Spencer makes to kill his child. Very Greek tragedy there, Lynch. For me, when he kills Spike, it feels cathartic. I know that's kind of a bad thing to say, but it does. (laughs) The whole movie builds up to this moment, and then I feel free afterward. The moment of embrace and warmth with the lady in the radiator makes it seem okay. Henry is our everyman our hero, which means we're with him in all of his struggles and choices. The first time I watched this movie, I just, I wasn't upset by Spike's death because I identified with the exhaustion and trapped feeling Henry Spencer was experiencing. Weirdly, this film feels like it's unpacking the feelings of postpartum depression through these abstract visuals. Postpartum depression is a specific type of depression that is a direct result of bringing a child into this world that many parents deal with. It leads to the typical symptoms of depression, but layered in with that, a feeling of inadequacy and inability to connect with your child that sometimes morphs into resentment and sadness for the child. It's a very serious thing that happens to a lot of parents, and I think there's an evolving conversation around this common mental illness. I think it's most commonly attributed to mothers, but it happens to fathers and other parents as well. I think we as the audience see Mary X struggle with postpartum through the beginning of the film and Henry through the rest of it. I honestly think it's pretty groundbreaking that Lynch would portray postpartum in a father during a time where there definitely was not a mainstream conversation happening around it, but it was definitely affecting fathers and parents around the world. Maybe it was happening to him. Many people, including Lynch's daughter Jennifer, believe that the idea of the quote-unquote deformed child comes from her being born with severely clubbed feet that required numerous corrective surgeries when she was a baby. She's openly posited that this was the inspiration for Eraserhead, but her father has not confirmed it. But I mean... If you were his kid, wouldn't you assume the same thing about you as well? I would never want to put anything on Lynch in terms of his feelings, but artists create to let the themes that are bubbling inside of them come out on a canvas. And this very well may have been a personal piece because of his experiences with his own daughter and her health struggles as a baby, and the depression that comes from that. Now, I'm not saying that people should do drastic things to their children, obviously. Eraserhead is not an example of good parenthood. But I think it's a very fascinating thing to me that Lynch was opening up these conversations about parenthood through these visceral images. I feel like for parents, it's probably impossible to watch this movie and not see something of yourself in it. If anything, you should see what Henry does to Spike and go, Oh, I would never do that to my own kid. Good. Maybe that's the point. Or at least one of the points. When it comes to fatherhood as a theme, in Lynch on Lynch, David Lynch said that that's obviously a theme, but if it was the only theme, quote, 
that would mean there'd be a million eraser head stories out here. Everybody has a kid and they make eraser head? That's ridiculous. It's not just that. It's a million other things. So, fatherhood may not be the only theme, but it's a big one. I scratched the surface here, but please reach out to me and let me know what some of your favorite themes of Eraserhead, and how do you feel about the theme of fatherhood throughout? Do you relate to it? Do you not get it? Another theme that jumps out to me is the spirituality of the piece. Believe it or not, Eraserhead is my most spiritual film. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why, we'll elaborate on that. No, I won't. <laughs> um, n- no one, no one uh, sees it. Eraserhead is my most spiritual film. I've been thinking about that so much. What could it mean? I see a lot of people attribute spirituality to relatability, theorizing that since many people believe the film to be about his relationship with his daughter and his first steps into fatherhood, this movie is about his personal experiences and therefore spiritual. And though that may be true, that Lynch relates to his own piece as I just talked about, I don't think that's the case at all when Lynch describes it as spiritual. I tell this story about the, uh, my first feature, Eraserhead. I did not know what these things meant, to, you know, really meant. And on that particular film, I started reading the Bible, and I'm reading the Bible going along, and suddenly there was a sentence. And I said, forget it. That, that's this thing. That's this thing. What I wouldn't give to know what sentence in the Bible is the thing of Eraserhead? Like, what? <laughs> I, I, I can't even fathom. I would love to know. If any of you are Bible aficionados, I'd love to know your opinions as to what you think is a razorhead in the Bible, because I am stumped. And I play that clip to tell you that I do believe Lynch is speaking about religious spirituality when he says a razorhead is his most spiritual film, or at least the roots of biblical storytelling, if that makes sense. Now, I make no assumptions about Lynch's religious experiences or points of view. As people may know, he's very deep in transcendental meditation, so I'm not sure religiously what that means. But I do believe that art can be made about things you don't necessarily believe in, as well as things you believe in wholeheartedly. I will say I myself am not a religious person in any capacity, so I'm not speaking from personal experiences, but rather an objective view of religious text and comparing it to Eraserhead. In the book Lynch on Lynch, interviewer and editor Chris Rodley asks about the prologue with the man and the planet, to which Lynch responds that it relates to the rest of the film deeply, saying, quote, It's very important what goes on in there, and no one has ever really written about that front part, but there's certain things that happen in that sequence that are key to the rest, and, uh, that's all. Lynch, with his infamous tight-lipped approach, declines and pushes back against Rodley's prodding to explain that comment further. He does mention his interviews with George Godwin, so I went digging in his book, Eraserhead, The David Lynch Files, Volume 1, to find a clue. As of now, I haven't been able to find any mention or answers that Lynch may have offered Godwin, so I can only assume any semblance of an answer happened off the record, which leaves us with our own ideas, which I believe David Lynch would have preferred. Another very spiritual take on the film is viewing it as an allegory, rooted in the idea that the man and the planet is a god figure testing his creations. I hadn't thought about that until I read an essay by Maya McBriar found in The Women of Lynch. There, Maya noted, quote, I think God, or a godlike being, gave Henry a test of sorts with a terribly deformed baby, a test that Henry failed. I think it's a compelling argument to view the man and the planet as a god figure. 
to me, he's quite beautiful at the opening of the film. The light shining perfectly on him, refracting against his crystallized skin as he looks out into the universe. His levers creating life, creating something that impacts the world of Henry Spencer. It makes it all the more interesting to me that in the climax of the film, we see the rotted teeth, the filth, the disgusting truths about the man and the planet as he loses control of what he is meant to do, destroying the planet he calls home in a final burst of failure. Viewing those actions as an impression or idea of what capital G God or a God has done to Henry Spencer, our everyman figure who symbolizes us, the audience, humankind, it's quite a spiritual concept of biblical proportions. I'm not saying this is absolute, but for me, the presence of the man and the planet is so much more impactful and inadvertently spiritual when we view him as God. When we fail God, does God have no power? Are our failures God losing power? By Henry Spencer killing his child, failing this test of the conditionality of love, but accepting it all the same, has he broken the reins of the man and the planet's power over him? Making our own choices. Is that freedom? That's quite an Old Testament portrait of an angry and punishing God. Who's to say that the lady in the radiator isn't God? A symbol of acceptance, forgiveness, and love. I definitely think that there are a million ways to look at this, and it all boils down to your experiences with the idea of a higher power. But while we're talking about the lady in the radiator, I'd love to focus on her for a moment. I'm excited to talk about the lady in the radiator because she's my favorite part of the film. Before I saw this movie, the image of her kind of freaked me out. She looked so strange and grotesque to me. I couldn't understand why he would make a woman look like her while she's stomping the guts out of creatures that many writers believe to be intended to be representative of sperm. I mean, as I said earlier, David Lynch did note that he called them tiny fetuses, so not far off. It's a lot for many people who watch this movie and are kind of confused by her presence. When the conversation isn't about tying her to the Freudian implications of a deformed Mary Sue, quote-unquote, squashing this physical symbol of masculine fertility, it's about her face. I've seen lots of uh, <laughs> interesting, let's say, interpretations of her face. There are some cool ones. A mushroom cloud, which I think is kind of interesting, you know, considering the image of that and other Lynchian works, you know, there's a picture of a mushroom cloud in Henry Spencer's room even, and it kind of comes back really notably in Twin Peaks The Return. Moons is something else I saw, which I also enjoy since the planet we see in the film kind of resembles a moon. Uh, what I don't agree with is ovaries, uh, so that's what I don't really like. <laughs> For me though, I think her face is simply her face. I think that's all it is. The more I read about Lynch's feelings about her, the more I got her. And on rewatches, I began to love her. I find her comforting, kind, and beautiful now, where I once found her off-putting and grotesque. In Lynch on Lynch, on the creation of the Lady in the Radiator and how he sees her, David Lynch said, quote, I was sitting in the food room one day, and I drew a picture of the Lady in the Radiator, and I didn't know where it came from but it was meaningful to me when I finally saw it drawn. And then I saw a radiator in my head, and it was this instrument for producing warmth in a room, and it made me sort of happy, like me as Henry, say. I saw this opening to another place, 
One thing led to another, and suddenly there she was. The lady in the radiator had bad skin. I think she had bad acne as a child, and used a lot of pancake makeup to smooth that out. But inside is where the happiness in her comes from. Her outward appearance is not the thing. I love that there's all these things that her face could represent, but to Lynch, her face is her face. And the fact that she wore a lot of makeup as a child is the only reason why it's like that. It's not trying to be anything it's not, but I do think there's a specific reason why she looks like this. The lady in the radiator's appearance is jarring. With her dress and calming voice, we expect her to be beautiful, but she's not. She's deformed and far from fits into the stereotypical beauty standards we have in our heads. I think that's so integral to her purpose. We have to push past her appearance and dig deeper into what she actually means. And I believe that her outward appearance is the way it is in order to shake us into refocusing about how she makes us feel. When we view women in film, it's usually through a specific lens of sexual attractiveness. Lynch makes her off-putting so that we can't focus on that. When we stop thinking about how she looks, we start thinking about how she makes us feel. She's the lady in the radiator, yes, but she is a radiator. Rough on the outside, but delivering warmth to those who come close. Her outward appearance is not the thing, it's what she does. Juxtapose her with the woman across the hall, a mysterious and absolutely gorgeous woman. She's striking. It's easy to be sexually attracted to her as Henry is. She's sensual and you want her just from seeing her, but on the inside, she's ugly. She judges Henry. She betrays him. If we're in the shoes of Henry, all those conventionally attractive women who we give our bodies and hearts to have insides that are as rotten as the dirt covering our apartment. They judge us, they betray us, and they leave us in the cold. But the lady in the radiator, she's there to warm us. When I pushed past my initial reactions to her visually, I was able to feel so deeply moved by her. I think I started seeing her the way Henry Spencer sees her. A light, a comfort, a hope. The way I think David Lynch sees her. I love the lady in the radiator. I, I just find her to be charming and warm and lovely. And whenever we see her, she's either looking at Henry or directly at the camera. At us. And I think that's intentional because I think she's not only his hope, but she's ours. She's supposed to give us the same feelings she gives Henry because that is what gives the film a sense of hope at the end. She's the light in this dark movie. She's our happy ending. I love her for that. Okay, Paul! Now onto the big question. Why the hell is it called Eraserhead? If I'm being honest, I don't know. <laughs> when I watch the film, my gut tells me that it has something to do with that iconic dream sequence. Henry's head after decapitation falls through a pool of blood in the floor that looks a lot like the opening sequence and lands in a broken heap of industrial waste. A young boy picks it up and takes it to a factory where the insides of his brains are turned into eraser heads. It leads to one of the most beautiful images for me. In the film, the eraser shavings glistening in the light that we return to later with probably the most famous image in the film. Henry giving his usual stare, somehow emotionless and completely emotionful at the same time, before the climax. In the book Eraserhead, The David Lynch Files, Volume 1, David Lynch himself possibly confirms this gut feeling I have when he's asked where he got the name Eraserhead. He responds, from that one scene. Yeah, it came from that one scene. 
The interviewer shifts away immediately, and I suppose one could argue there is no way to know what David Lynch could be referring to when he says that one scene, but my gut tells me the answer is in that sequence. I'm just not sure what it was. I encourage you to let me know your thoughts and what the name of the film means to you. A common interpretation I've seen is the obvious one. Erasers erase things. And he needs to erase his guilt of patricidal urges. He wants to erase his past with Mary X. Maybe the idea of it is that he's erasing thoughts, erasing them with his head. I've seen that interpretation a lot, and I've seen pushback that it's too easy. Maybe. But maybe not. I think some film critics think Lynch is confusing for confusing sake, and I absolutely detest that. You have such a nice wife and um, just a nice little girl. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering how such a, you know, such a nice normal existence, and you're so strange. Well, I'm not all that strange, really. And also, um... I don't think David Lynch's purpose as a filmmaker is to confuse his audience. I don't think he's trying to give us some impossible puzzle that we will never solve so he can revel in our idiocy. I don't think that at all. I think he's been very open with the fact that he gives light to the ideas that come to him. He shows the ideas in the way that they want to be shown, and he trusts his audience to take the time to let these ideas hit us, let our bodies have a natural understanding of them, and then explore all the possibilities of art. David Lynch gives us all the clues we need, and he believes in us. He believes in our ability to understand in an innate way his work. He trusts his audience to trust themselves. He gives us all the pieces we need. And um, so I should know the meaning for me, but when things get abstract, it does do no good to say what it is, you know. It's better, all viewers on the surface, we're all different. And we see something, and that's another place where intuition kicks in, and inner knowingness. And so you, you, you see a thing, you, you think about it, you feel it, and you go and you sort of know something inside. And you can rely on that. So you do know, you do know, for yourself. And what you know is valid. So, to those who would say the simple meaning is too obvious, maybe, but maybe not. I don't think Lynch tries to tell us overly complicated ideas in his work. I think he tells us simple ideas in complicated ways. And maybe, just maybe, the simple answer is the right one. It is a a personal film, and no reviewer or critic or viewer um, has ever uh, given an interpretation that is my interpretation since the, you know, 25 years or more that it's been out. Eraserhead is a groundbreaking piece of avant-garde cinema, and it perfectly showcases many of Lynch's trademarks as a director and the themes he'll continue to unpack through his art through the years. The patience he has with storytelling, how each moment is filled to the brim with tense energy but is so deeply controlled it envelops your senses, the significance of light and darkness, the juxtaposition of the two and what they represent, visual metaphors that resonate differently with different people. It's just so impressive to look back and think that this was his first film and that he'll only go on to deepen those themes and add to them throughout his incredible career. Thank you again for joining me for the first episode of On Lynch. I am 
so excited to continue this project and connect with you all, interview interesting people, and share in the love of David Lynch's works. This definitely won't be the first time I talk about Eraserhead. I truly think we just scratched the surface, but I'd love to make some more episodes where we dive in even further, and I'd love to read your thoughts and interpretations on the podcast. I'm excited to announce here that my second episode I have actually already recorded will be coming to you next month, and I was actually able to interview Kenneth George Godwin, the writer of The David Lynch Files Volume 1. The interview was a blast. It was so fun. He's such a nice guy. And I absolutely recommend you pick up a copy of his book. I think it is kind of the quintessential oral history of Eraserhead, if you're interested in the film at all. Basically, the story behind it, very quickly, is that in the early 80s, he was one of the first people to actually interview David Lynch about Eraserhead. And David Lynch gave the cast and crew permission to speak to Kenneth George Godwin. So he wrote this incredible article that is just everything about Eraserhead. And in his book, he has the article as well as all of the transcripts of all the interviews he did. It is a very cool, very awesome book that I used a lot during my research for this. And it was really fun to hear him talk about what it was like to meet David Lynch and Jack Nance and all the other incredible artists of Eraserhead. So you will not want to miss that interview. It was super fun. And after that, we'll be diving into The Elephant Man. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find the podcast on Instagram or Twitter at OnLynchPodcast or go to OnLynchPodcast.com to email me your thoughts and just engage with some of the extra content I'm making on the website. On that website, you'll also find information about all of David Lynch's works and a page specifically for Eraserhead. And there I'll have a transcript of the episode shortly uploaded with some citations that I used, links to the books I read, as well as links to the videos for some of the audio I used in this podcast. If you'd like to support the show, head over to anchor.fm slash onlynch to make a monthly donation or consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you like it. And with that, I'll see you next time on On Lynch. I wish you blue skies and golden sunshine all along the way.